Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 44, this is Spinal Tap Movie Review. Chris McBride here, along with Yancey Eaton. Yancey, um, it is the beginning of summer. Uh, tomorrow is Canada Day, July 1st, here in Canada, so I'm very, very excited about that. But uh, kicking off the summer, my uh, my kids are done school, so I decided I would uh, be a very nice dad. And this afternoon, I thought I would take them to an afternoon movie. And so they both wanted to go see Cars 3. And I know that you, <laughs> you are a humongous fan of Pixar, right? You love Correct. their work. You love all the stuff that they do. Um, that movie sucked. <laughs> it was let's awful. Get, oh, wow. Let's get right to awful, it. <laughs> awful, 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 awful movie, Cars 3. And the thing is, is that, like, it's not just like, like, okay, so I'm watching the movie, and I'm thinking, man, they just gave up on this. They just gave up. It's just like they threw in the towel on this on this movie. And it's not like, well, we just, we, you know, we did one, we did two, now, you know, we're kind of losing it, because it doesn't work like that with Pixar. In fact, it works the opposite. If you look at Toy Story, Toy Story 3 is the best the, one of the best animated films I've ever seen in my life. Definitely the best of that series. So it, that one got better. This one got worse. It was so bad. At one point, I'm sitting there. I got my son on my one side. My wife is on the other side. And my wife nudges me and she goes, you're snoring. I'm not even making this up. I, I actually fell asleep and was snoring. In the yeah, I've, awesome. I've seen some of the reviews and stuff too. And uh, I've read a couple articles from, you know, people who get paid to do this for a living. And, you know, the first Cars was phenomenal. And the second Cars was kind of a departure from that. And they introduced different characters and kind of, I don't know, it was it was an okay movie. But yeah, I haven't seen it yet. But what you're basically saying is that sentiment is repeated by lots of people who are saying that it's it doesn't even feel like a Pixar film. This just feels like a really cheap money grab where there wasn't a lot of effort in it. And nope. that Pixar, you know, quote unquote magic that normally goes into their films just isn't there. So that's kind of disappointing. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to hear that you, you hated it so much. I didn't read anything about it going in. I knew nothing about the movie going in. I didn't know what it was about anything. And mm -hmm. I just was shocked at the lack of plot in the movie, the lack of characters in the movie like the, like there, even the lack of scenes it was like nothing happens i'm like we're an hour into this movie and nothing's happened i don't get it i don't understand the idea was is that you know lightning mcqueen is getting older and the younger generation is taking over kind of like on this podcast yancy and mm -hmm. um but the the younger people were kind of moving up and taking over the rookies so i mean the concept made sense but it was very very pure really executed anyway sorry to, sorry to break it to you because i know you like pixar but that movie sucked Oh God, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we got uh, we got much better things to get to uh, this week. So you ready to get going? Yep. Before we do, I just yep. very quickly want to wish a very happy birthday to my oldest sister Ashley. She occasionally listens to the podcast, not all nice. of the time, but in either event, happy thirty uh, second birthday. I don't know if she wanted me to divulge her age, but it is her birthday, and I hope she has a good one. So well, let's get into happy it. Happy birthday, Ashley! Ashley. On that note, let's get started. <laughs> It's AT-ATs, not AT-ATs. I do understand your reasoning with the whole hype in. So maybe it's a, it's an American thing, AT-ATs. I don't know. I refuse to accept that, to be honest with you. I, yeah, I'm going to go all the way to the top if I have to. Until I hear it from, like, George Lucas's mouth. And you know, uh, we'll get an answer, but... I don't have anything to back it up. It seems pretty conclusively that it's AT-ATs, not AT-ATs. What? Are you serious? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this week I made you watch the Gen X classic. 
This is Spinal Tap. And just to preface it a little bit, you and I have known each other for a lot of years. And I remember when we did our old podcast, I had mentioned Spinal Tap on there. And you even back then, a couple of years ago, you were like, yeah, people have been telling me for years I got to watch this movie. And I just never do. And I've never watched it. So uh, coming into tonight, you watch the movie. First impressions, go. Uh, first impressions. Uh, I honestly thought I was going to enjoy this movie a lot more than I did. Um, going back to some of the movies that we've watched in the past, they're kind of like in the same ilk as these, as far as like a comedy and uh, just like ad libbing and mm-hmm. you know all that stuff throughout the film. I I don't think this is a bad film, but it did not resonate with me, or I did not find it nearly as funny as the other films, and I was really disappointed in that because I thought this being like the world of of, of music and record labels and, and touring rock bands, I thought I would have identified with this a lot more than I yeah, did some of the other films. Yeah, because you like music and you like musicians. Yeah, and I I can appreciate the realness of it because I think that even though it was you know a parody a parody and they were basically trying to you know emulate what real life is like you know with these big rock bands and the label industry and stuff, but I just felt like there was this disconnect with me where I felt it wasn't all the jokes that they were trying to trying to put out there it didn't really land. And, you know, what's the one line where they talk about in the film where it says it's such a fine line between being stupid and clever. Yes. To me, there were there were moments when I thought it was incredibly clever and I did enjoy it. But there was just a handful of moments where I actually found myself laughing out loud. Whereas, you know, like an airplane or blazing saddles, I laughed about the entire movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a little bit of a disappointment to me, but I can see why it resonated so much with people, um, you know, as like a cult film later. You know, it didn't do very well at the box office early on. But um, to be honest with you, it kind of felt a little dated and a lot of the dialogue dialogue just didn't really hit with me. Yeah, no, I can understand what you're saying, and and I get it, because one of the things is, for a millennial to watch a movie like this is a little bit of a shock, because um, it it, it looks, you know, it it looks kind of cheap, right? I mean, it's shot on handheld cameras. I know there was a lot of problems during the production, like, people were like, what is this handheld? So you got to, where's the the cameraman needs to, you know, keep it straight, you know, but that was the whole point. They wanted to make it look like a documentary, like it was behind the scenes. So I can, I can understand um, a Gen X or a, yeah, a Gen Xer who's good, or sorry, a Gen Xer, <laughs> uh, a millennial who's used to like, you know, big flashy movies and CGI and all this getting thrown into this world to go, whoa, what is this? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like the thing is, like for me, is that you, you make a couple of good points. So number one, the movie was not very well received when it, when it came out. It made $4 million at the box office basically Sheesh. bombed and nobody it only cost two million to make so i mean they made money but um like it it didn't make a lot of money nobody knew what the hell to make of it they were like what is this is this real is this fake and it wasn't until like okay so um it wasn't until the advent of uh, the home video right that things right. kind of took off for that movie and, and i mean i know it's hard for you to believe uh, as a millennial but there was a time, Yancey, when the only way that you could actually consume a film, you could watch them, was actually going to the movie theater. Like, that was it, right? So then all of a sudden, home video came out, and it came right out right around this time. And so what people did was, you know, we would get a couple of movies and just watch them over and over and over again. And this was one that, for me personally, that I got. It was one of the first movies that I ever got because I saw it um, on the movie channel. I didn't go to see it in the theater. Saw it on the movie channel, and I just loved it right away. I just loved the mm-hmm. concept of the improv and stuff. And so I would watch it over and over again on on a, on a, with a VCR tape, you know, VHS. And I think a lot of other people did, too, in this generation. So um, you had a couple moments you said that you laughed at. Uh, any stick out for you that you want to share? I think the one part where they were being interviewed and they were talking about reviews that the oh, band had yeah. gotten. Isn't that great? That it's oh. probably the best. I mean, what was it? They were talking about uh, treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I want that like on my tombstone or something like I thought it was it was it was so perfect. I hope that that was, 
you know, completely made up on the spot like that because I thought it was absolutely perfect. But it or like was. And sorry, about- sorry to jump in. The other thing during that scene, those reviews that um, that Rob Reiner, Marty DeBerge was reading to them. That was the first time that they heard it. So really? it, was, it was an improvised scene, and that was the first. So that was the as the actors. That was the first time. First time they were hearing the reviews. And if you go back and watch it, they're barely <laughs> holding it together. They're barely holding it together during that scene because they're hearing it. My favorite one was um, the review that they got for Shark Sandwich, which was basically just a two word review from the Rolling Stone. <laughs> Sandwich. <laughs> They're like, oh, they did. They didn't print that. They did, they could we can't print that. <laughs> or or what was the other one? What day did God create Spinal Tap? And couldn't he have just rested that day too? Because <laughs> that was the, yeah, the review for the Gospel According to Spinal Tap album. <laughs> yeah, I oh, thought man. I thought that was that that part was perfect. There was a couple yeah, of other like scenes, like too. a one of the scenes where they're performing and they have what looks like you know. The band goes through these progressions where it's constantly adapting and changing. You know, it shows them whenever they first formed as a band. They're almost like the Mamas and the Papas or like the Birds, you know, back in 1969. Like they were, they like were a very, folk band or something. Remember, like, give me yeah, some like money. And then they were on like yeah. TV, yeah, the flower, the flower people. <laughs> and then it shows and then it shows them, you know, more present time. And it's almost like a Black Sabbath concert or something where like they have like these plastic looking like alien pods that yeah, they're trying the to pods. come out of. And, and the one the guitarist pods. can't get out, and he's trying to break out of this. <laughs> the bass player you know, can't get out. <laughs> exactly. At the very end of the performance, he finally comes out whenever they're all supposed to like go back into their little <laughs> – you know, something like that. It's yeah. it's stupid, but it, I I really enjoyed that. Um, but those are the things, I, though, Yancey, That if it, like you know, as you you're a musician yourself, right? And yeah. and so you can yes, relate you to musicians. And the thing was, is that it was those little things like that that made the movie resonate, right? Because I think real musicians watched this movie and went, "Oh my God, I've been there. I've been at those concerts. We've done shows like that. Like when you tour, you know." 300 days out of a year stuff like this is going to happen and it does happen right and it cuts mm-hmm. really really close to the bone i remember there was um a couple of real musicians that watched the movie for the first time when it came out and, and were quite you know sort of moved by it i remember ozzy osbourne um he was one he thought it was real and he was like this is this is real i'm now you know you know for what it's worth ozzy osbourne doesn't even know his own name half the time you know what i mean so there's that right but, but i mean he thought it was real i remember um reading that the um the edge and tom waits both cried when they saw the movie they actually cried because they thought it was it was just spot be, on. just because it was just yeah. so spot on and it, and they knew what it was like to be the band that was that you know that was questioning itself and thinking am i good enough am i good enough i'm not good enough to do this you know like we're, we're falling apart you know things aren't going mm-hmm. our way and they've been there and they've been through that you know so that it really resonated close to the bone the I, other, I do think there's yeah. there's one interesting part with that not to cut you off but oh no, yeah this is a comedy and it is meant to be a parody, but in a weird alternate universe, I think you could have actually seen this film being some sort of uh, like an actual movie. Like there's a real story there. And I think it all kind of it, 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 it encircles uh, identity and how like this band saw themselves versus how the public saw them and how, you know, they get a taste of, of fame and it they do allow that to distort them and they do lose their identity and just seeing like their music progression, how, you know, they'll say they don't want to say they don't want to say uh, stay stale throughout the entire you know career. And towards the end of the movie, they talk about like, we don't really want to be 45, like up here on the stage, like, you know, doing the same old burnt out tunes and getting in the same patterns and stuff. And so like through their whole career, every single time you see them on stage, they're doing something completely different. There's different, you know, props, different costumes, their entire genre of music changes like one like i mentioned one time they sound like the birds or the mamas and the papas and they sound like black sabbath or they sound like 
uh, you know, poison. They become like a hair band. Like they, they never really got a sense of truly who they were. And I think you're going to find that with a lot of people who are in show business because the desire to be famous almost always outweighs the desire to create something original and speak, you know, and and, and, and actually say something meaningful that's kind of bigger than, you know, the band itself. Um, so, like like I said, I, I think they kind of touched on that, but they never fully embraced that. I think if this movie had, like, a sequel and they were somehow able to bring the, the entire cast back and do it that way, um, I would have been really, really interested in that. That was one part that they kind of teased that they never really jumped into. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, one of the things for me is that how... This movie fooled a lot of people. Okay, like I said, there were there was musicians that were fooled that actually thought that this band was real. There were, the audience did too. I remember um, this, this Spinal Tap then actually actually got together and did concerts after this movie came out. I remember there was one time I don't remember when it was. I'd have to Google it and look it up. I, I was in university and I remember reading that Spinal Tap was flying across the world and basically in one day doing like three different concerts like like all in wow. the same day like because it was like this big thing they were playing all over the place like these guys actually got together and made a band out of it for a while and they actually put an album out after this um so like it was just crazy but the thing was they were able to fly under the radar and fool a lot of people because i think because of who was involved but wait, you know when you look back on it even that's sh- like i shouldn't have fooled people but like rob reiner for example he was the best known of the group like he, he was michael stivick on uh, meathead on All in the mm-hmm. Family. And and his dad is like the legendary Carl Reiner. So, I mean, he was well-known. Like, and, and, and that's Rob Reiner. And at the beginning, he's like, hi, I'm Marty DeBerge. And so people should know, okay, that he's playing a part. But they still didn't get it. Like, But, I mean, the, the band themselves, they were pretty much unknown. Like Michael McKeon, who was probably the best known of those actors at the time, because he was known for playing Lenny. Uh, of Lenny and Squiggy on Laverne and Shirley. So back in those days, you've heard of Laverne and Shirley. Um, yep, of course. Very, very, very popular show in the 70s, spun off of uh, Happy Days. And, um, and so he was on that. So he was, but he looked totally different because he was a greaser in that show. And now here, all of a sudden, he's got this long hair, this wig, you know, when he's playing the lead guitar player. Um, Harry Shearer, at this point, he was a bass player. He hadn't done The Simpsons yet. So he was unknown. Christopher Guest, it wasn't until a couple years later that Christopher Guest played the six-fingered man in The Princess Bride. So nobody really knew him. So I think they were able to fly under the radar, radar, like I say, and fool a lot of people, which was part of the charm of the movie. Mm -hmm. The fact that the really at the heart of it, this is a band that is kind of a bunch of unknowns. You know what I mean? They're they're holding on to some glory that they never even really had in the first with place. With a hyper elevated sense of self worth and importance that's <laughs> justified. You know exactly. What I mean? And so they're not they weren't ever a big deal. And I think it was perfect because, you know, they were played by a bunch of guys who were not very well known. So they were able to, to kind of uh, fly under the radar. One of the things that like a lot of the Gen X movies that I want you to watch and I you know implore you to watch for the show is the fact that the influence that they've had and like this movie had a lot of influence um, on movies to come. Like like Christopher Guest basically went on to make a bunch more of these kind of mockumentary movies like Waiting for Guffman. You ever heard of Waiting for Guffman? I have not. Or no. Be- Best in Show or A Mighty Wind. Heard I've heard of Best in Best Show. Best in yes. Show is it's about the dog uh, at the Westminster Dog Show. It's about these people that mm-hmm. just love dogs and so. And, but it's a mockumentary, and it's directed by Christopher Guest. Like he kind of find his niche. You really should watch Waiting for Guffman. Waiting for Guffman is really, really, really funny. Um, and it's basically this mockumentary about this small town theater troupe that wants to put on this play and go to Broadway. And it's just, <laughs> I don't know, it's pretty funny too. But um, but yeah, no, like I say, like it, I thought the movie was really sort of. Um, 
I don't want to say groundbreaking, but I mean, like, it, it was definitely influential. It was a different take on um, on how to make movies, and it was a different take on how to to do something different. But um, the funny thing is, though, is I think a lot of people look at this movie and they look at Spinal Tap and they say this is like the first mockumentary movie ever made. But mm-hmm. really, it wasn't. And in fact, it wasn't even the first rockumentary that was ever made. Of course, meaning like a fake documentary about a rock band. The very first one was actually took place um, back in 1978, and it's called The Ruddles. Have you ever heard of that before? Uh, you're getting into the really deep rarities and B-sides. I've never heard of There are Gen Xers out there that are going to know what I'm talking about, Yancey. I want you to look into this. So, Lauren Michaels on, on Saturday Night Live, right? Back in the 70s. He starts up. Yeah, of course. Night. One of the things he wanted to do was back in like 77, 78. Because his, the show started to really pick up steam. Belushi, Ackroyd, and all that. The, the show was picking up steam, right? It was popular. SNL was. And so, Lauren Michaels reached out to the Beatles. And he said to the Beatles, I will pay you guys a million dollars. If you come to New York and reform for one performance on Saturday Night Live. And it became kind of a thing on the show. It was like this recurring bit and all this. And then they, they couldn't get the Beatles to, 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 to reform and come on. But what they did was on one of the episodes, um, they had um, they said, oh, no, we, we, we couldn't get the Beatles. But we actually they sent over some tape of another band that uh, that's big in, in, in England. And they're called the, the Ruddles. And so they were like and it was like this sort of. Like like this tape that they played on SNL was like this this about this band was like this this sort of mockumentary about this band that didn't exist that was kind of a spoof of the Beatles and the, that bit was so popular and amazing too by the way that they went ahead and made a full length mockumentary about the band so it, it, you know if anyone mm-hmm. out there that liked Spinal Tap or liked this sort of genre um, you got to find a copy of the Ruddles and why it is brilliant it's done by Eric Idle. Um, and the cast of SNL, the original cast, like Belushi, Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, and Neil Innes, this guy, he writes the songs for it. The songs are so spot on. It's supposed to be like a parody of the Beatles, but in some cases, some of those songs are as good as the Beatles songs that they're trying to, to parody. Amazing, amazing stuff. But anyway, that's another. And another one, too, that comes to mind in terms of a mockumentary that actually came out before this was Zelig by Woody Allen. It came out like in 83, a year before Spinal Tap. So it wasn't even mm-hmm. the first of its kind. But I definitely think it definitely had some some influence on other ones. Um, what about, uh, did you notice any cameos as you're watching the movie? You notice anybody that kind of popped up throughout the movie? Um, there was I a lot. And you're going to completely ruin my entire trivia question section. Um, but yeah, I did notice some cameos. Um, I I had to go back and I, I'll admit, whenever I was looking through the IMBD page, just trying to get names of, you know, sometimes you forget characters' names and stuff while you're watching the film or you can't remember this part of that part. I was going through it and I would see names. And I'm like, wait, what? And like, I literally had to go back through and I'm like, I'm skimming trying to find them. Or I would go on YouTube and look for the, like these particular scenes where they were in because I completely missed the fact that this very famous person is is actually in the film. But yes, I, I, I did notice a little bit of that. But like I said, I'm afraid you're going to ruin it. I won't go into candy cameos <laughs> then with you now. We'll leave it for the trivia. Like, part of the show um, the yeah. one that I will mention though, is one of my favorites from WKRP in Cincinnati Howard Hessman is in the movie and he's the, the manager of Duke Fame remember they run into him in the lobby and they run mm-hmm. into this guy Duke Fame that's all you know and, and Duke Fame himself by the way was actually played by uh, Paul Shortino who is the lead singer for Rough Cut and he just has a little cameo there and then Howard Hessman is like his manager or whatever. was this yeah. the part whenever they act like they like him and they walk yeah they're like, like yeah, the, yeah it is like oh what a wanker what a wanker yeah. oh yeah they were they were still booing him when we came on stage remember that <laughs> like, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um, so so was there some scenes that, um, that that stuck out to you what any scenes that you liked of the movie I know overall you didn't really you know love the movie but um there must have um, been a few scenes yeah, I, did, I didn't love the 
I, I do think there are definitely some redeeming qualities and, and, and scenes to it. I really, I love Nigel as a character. Um, I think I would have loved it if he were more a part of it where they actually explored the fact that he is kind of trained. Like he was classically trained and, you know, he, there was the one scene where like he's playing this really, really beautiful uh, piano piece and yeah. he's like, oh, this is D minor. And every time you yeah. hear it, it just makes you want to weep. And weep. Yeah. he's like, oh, well, what's, what's the name of the, uh, What's the name of this piece? He's like, oh, I call it Lick My Love Pump. Oh, my, my, my. So it's just like, <laughs> yeah. it's like he he can be like the artsy, you know, type of, you know, really educated musician, but he's also at, like at the heart of like who he is. He's just like a child. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I thought Fran Drescher's part uh, of Bobby. Bobby Fleckman. And I wish she was in the movie so much more. She, for one, incredibly lovely. I've never seen pictures of her when she was younger acting like that but literally one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen did not expect that. But her character was so interesting and so strong and like was just so good at um, kind of like playing off where like she's not taking any of the band's BS and was like so straightforward and kind of tells it like it is like a strong woman in films like that, that early on were kind of rare, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And when she was in one of my favorite scenes too, was when they, when they could have released their album and then um, it's called smell the glove. And then remember they wanted to, they wanted to put it out. And then she's like, you can't put, that out you you put a grease naked woman on all fours with a dog collar on her neck and and, and you had her you know and you had a guy's hand sticking out with a black glove in her face for her to sniff it like, what the hell is that you can't do that and then and then uh, my favorite line then the manager goes well you should have seen the cover they wanted to do it wasn't a glove believe me yeah. <laughs> like, i don't know there was there was so many good parts of that movie but yeah no she was she was really good i thought that was any other scenes that kind of stood out to you um i i like the very end as the credits were rolling whenever they're they're talking to the you know like or let me let me let me go back a little bit when they're talking to he's interviewing the one of many drummers in the film when he's laying in the bathtub oh yes. and he's talking about you know like how does it feel you know knowing that all these drummers have died like are you worried and he's like well you know it's not likely it's going to happen to me you know like the law of averages <laughs> oh yeah yeah the law of averages like that's his justification <laughs> yeah. for the fact that he's not going to die because they've been through like six um, drummers already or whatever or like yeah. 37 people have been in this band so far 37 <laughs> exactly what about stonehenge yeah. did you like the stonehenge part uh, the Stonehenge part was probably the funniest part of the entire thing. He writes Whenever down, he, he writes really it down eighteen inches on the napkin, and then she makes it. You yeah. Know? Oh, I thought that was good. And then, and the th- sorry, yeah, go ahead with Stonehenge. He's, Stonehenge. he's thinking it's literally like a an eighteen inch, you know, just a diagram of what the larger thing is going to be. Right. And yeah. no, that's literally what she built. Yeah, like, yeah, he's, he's, like, he's, he's like, he's like, like when does when do we get the real piece? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> and the, you know the cool thing for me, like I mean that that scene is like one of the most famous scenes in the movie, right? And mm-hmm. one of the things I liked about how they did it though was that they let the audience in on the joke before the band finds out, right? Because yep. Ian's meeting with Angelica Houston's character, right? And then he's like really bad that she got this wrong, right? And then they decide to go ahead and use the prop anyway, but the band doesn't know, but the audience knows, so they're out there and they're playing their song, and then it gets lowered from the rafters. <laughs> And of course, it's it's in danger of being trod upon by a dwarf. And then my favorite part is after the scene's over and they're all kind of sitting in the dressing room and they're doing sort of a like a postmortem on what went wrong and they're going through it all. And then finally there's silence. And then Derek Smalls puts down his pipe and goes, he's like pondering things. And he goes, well, the real question is, are we going to do Stonehenge tomorrow night? <laughs> they're like, no, we're not going to do Stonehenge tomorrow night. <laughs> I love that. And of course, the, uh, the what about the scene where the amplifiers go to 11? One of the most famous scenes in the movie, too. But this goes to 11. Yeah, exactly. These all go to 11. And then, you know, when, when you're on 10 on your guitar and you're on 10 on your amp and you want to go, you want to go higher, where's, where's it go? Nowhere to go. 
11. And then, of course, the director's like, well, why don't you just make 10 louder? Make that louder, and then you, you're good to go. And, and it's just so funny, because in, in character, he just ponders it for a second. Oh, these go to 11. Like, he just doesn't have an answer for it, right? Like, it's so yep. good. Um, I don't know. And even as a musician, I thought it was interesting. When they do the song Big Bottom, and they're on stage singing about, you know, Talk about mud flaps. My girls got them, big bottom, and all that stuff. And they're, I don't know if you noticed, but they're, they're all of them are playing bass guitars. They're not all three, actually, yes, I did all three of them are playing bass guitars because it's big bottom, right? I don't know. I just thought that yeah. was kind of it was just that was clever. Also, the scene. I don't know if you noticed, there was a scene where they interviewed and they've all got cold sores. And they've all oh, got a mean, cold you, you mean herpes? Yes. Yeah, yeah. They've all got it, and and it's actually from a deleted scene that was in the movie because they actually all um, slept with the lead singer of their opening act. That was part of the. Then they ended up cutting it, but they left in the seed, but they all get the, the cold sore from her. Um, the movie is probably best known for the quotes. So, did any quotes stand out to you? Um, the finally between stupid and clever. Um, I'm going to start using that daily, like in my regular vernacular. That's a quote that I just love so much. I think it's perfect. Um, like you mentioned, some of the songs, like the sex farm woman, I'm going to mow you down. Like I'm, <laughs> I got to find some way to incorporate that and just like daily conversations with my wife uh, i love the part whenever they're interviewing the bassist during the credit sequence at the very end and uh he's basically talking about how you know basically like a preserved moose and they're like so you, you feel like a preserved moose on stage or, or <laughs> yeah or uh, then he's describing like the two characters you know we have these two huge personalities these two different visions these visionaries for our team for our band you know like one's like fire and ice and i'm kind of like you know lukewarm water which he doesn't right. even realize that how insulting that sounds to himself, but in his mind that right. makes just perfect sense. You know what right. I mean? It's kind of it's an it's an anti joke, but it it just works for me. I love like really clever wordplay like that. It was set up really well. Um, what about you? Did you have any other ones? That kind oh, of there's so you? many quotes, and I like when they're talking about the, what happened to your first drummer, and they're like, "Oh, he died in a bizarre gardening accident." You know, I actually wrote that down. Yeah, authorities <laughs> said best leave it unsolved. Really, you know. And then when he's asking him about his name, David Saint Hubbins. St. Hubbins, you can tell it's totally improvised, too. Like, St. Hubbins, that's an unusual name. Like, where, where does that mean? Um, he goes, was there a St. Hubbins? And he's like, yeah, he was the, the patron saint of quality footwear. And, like, just mm-hmm. stupid stuff like that. Um, I like the, um, oh, the scene, too, where they're, when he's showing them all the guitars. We were just talking about when these go to 11. I like what he goes, he goes, like, picks up the guitar, doesn't plug it in. And he's showing, like, Nigel's got it, right? And he's like, listen to the, the sustain in this guitar. The sustain's so good. And Marty's mm-hmm. like, I don't hear anything. Well, well, if I were playing it, you would, you know, like just stupid stuff like. And that. then he's I like, don't, "Don't even, don't even look at it." Yeah, don't, you, you don't. can't, you can't look, you can't play this. <laughs> Ever, you don't even look at it. And then I also like when the director says, um, "I've noticed that um, a, a large proportion of your audience is made up of predominantly young boys." Why is that? And then they, they want to say, well, because we're on stage wearing tight trousers and we've got armadillos on our trousers and the girls, they run away screaming. And it's just like, it's quite frightening for them. <laughs> like, just like that. I, I don't know. I felt like all those, it was just that kind of rock and roll stuff. Even yeah. the way when he goes through the the airport um, and, he, and it's it's going off and going off and she's like, do you have any artificial plates or limbs? He's like, no, not really. <laughs> and he takes out the cucumber wrapped in tinfoil. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's just so much of it was funny. But the, like a lot of it, like I say, it cuts to the bone. And I thought there was just, I thought it was clever all around. One thing I did want to mention was uh, Tony Hendra. So he plays Ian, the band manager in it. And the thing was like, he's probably like the least known of all the guys, but he was actually like a pretty important guy to have in that movie like because he was really involved in that with national lampoon in the 70s um he co-wrote and directed the stage play lemmings and for anybody that's big into like 70s comedy they know exactly what lemmings is it was done by national lampoon um 
actors like Belushi and Chevy Chase were in it before they were on SNL. Um, and Kendra, Hendra, uh, Tony Hendra co-wrote that with Sean Kelly, uh, who went on to do Caddyshack. And, and well, that's, of course, one of me and Caveman's favorite movies. Um, and Hendra also co-created, you ever heard of a show called Spitting Image? It was with these I, like, I puppets. Not, no. It's like they, they had these puppets and they look like real celebrities. And Tony Hendra kind of did that. But the big thing was with Tony Hendra, like behind the scenes in the comedy world, is he's the guy that introduced John Belushi to cocaine. Or at least that's what Bob Woodward mentioned in his book, Wired. So I'm like, it's, it's just, I don't know. I just all around, I just, I just love this movie. What, what, one question I have, though, before we go on. I, I mentioned, you know, before, like, the movie's mostly improvised. I think that's really, really cool. I also think it was cool that they actually spent years developing these characters and their backstories so that the improv had like some sort of grounding to it. But one of the things that, that, that was going on, I don't know if you picked it up or not. And this is something that a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to Spinal Tap, but I want to know your, your opinion on this. Do you think that, so you know Nigel Tufnell and David, right. David St. Hubbins. Do you think Nigel Tufnell had a crush on David St. Hubbins? Um... I think there's been some debate amongst people that really love this movie as to whether or not that was going on because he was very jealous of David's girlfriend Janine and all that and I think he was kind of crushed by things. I just wonder if that's that's something that kind of stood always stood out to me. I don't know. I mean, I guess it could make sense. Um, I would just take that as like, you know, with her trying to supplant, uh, what was his name, Faith as the band's manager. Right. That just seems like a natural move or like a girl who's close to the – who's close to the band tries to like insert herself into that. And he saw this like a power move where, you know, two people in charge in the band are now some of the most visible. And, you know, I, I don't know if that necessarily kind meant of a Yoko was... Ono moment, right. For the, for the band. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, I, I, I don't know. That's, that's kind of some weird fan theory. I'd have to go back through. I mean, it makes sense. I'm not going to dispute it, but I think if you'd ask the actors, they, maybe they would divulge if that was the case. Well, I, I don't know. Okay. Well, years have gone by. You finally had a chance to watch the movie. We always ask this at the end uh, of after we've watched it and talked about it a little bit. Out of ten, mm-hmm. what do you what would you give the movie? Um, so I wasn't in love with the film, but I, I will acknowledge that it was an above average film. It was it was interesting and uh, the theme that it, it kind of was trying to, you know, the, the thing that it was making fun of, I think was pretty effective. I would give it maybe like a six point eight, not quite a yep. seven, but an above average film. It's a pretty good film. No, that's okay. All right, well. Uh, We've got our, our, our talk out of the way. We've got our rating out of the way. It's time now to have some fun with Yancey. Okay, so uh, we're, you're going to give me some trivia on this movie, right? Yep, I'm going to try. All right, well, g- give, me a, give, me a, give me a shot and see what happens. Okay, so at the very beginning when you see the, the film director and he is basically introducing the film and talking about the band, yeah. uh, he gives three qualities that he admires about Spinal Tap at the very beginning. The three are their exuberance, their raw power, and their blank. What is it? Oh, is it their – oh, I don't know. It's their exuberance, their raw power, and their punctuality. Their punctuality. <laughs> oh, jeez. Which was just really – really weird to me but uh okay so uh the band when they're talking about their inception uh they talked about their name what their first name was which was the originals Mm -hmm. and then of course they discovered that they're not the original originals which i thought was really really funny and so then they decided to change their name and what did they change their name to they became the new originals all right so the the band let me rephrase this you're actually you're right and you, you kind of caught me in this okay so they became the new originals and then the band that was the originals changed their name to what 
Oh, the, oh, the, oh! I don't, I don't remember. So, so the the original, the originals changed their name to something else. I don't remember what they changed it to. Yeah, they changed it to the regulars. Oh, the regulars. <laughs> right. Okay. So you had the originals, the new right. originals, and then the originals changed their name to the regulars. And at that point, the new originals decided it wasn't worth it to change their name again. So right. I, I thought that was really funny because because they didn't Spinal Tap go on to, to call themselves then the the the, the Tamesmen. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then went to Spinal you, Tap. you would know more than I would, yeah. but yes. Um, okay, so. According to the official IMBD page, how many band members have been a part of This Is Spinal Tap? 37. 37. Jesus. Okay. All right. Spinal Tap has made two appearances on The Simpsons show. Of course, we talked about Harry Schreier has been on The Simpsons for a long time. He was in this film, obviously, as the basis. Um, Can you name which two years Spinal Tap as a whole band made an appearance on The Simpsons? Oh, The Simpsons. I don't know. I would say, like, I'm going to guess at 88 and 92. You were half right. You got 80, or I'm sorry, you got 92, was dead on, and 1989. So you were just one Ooh, year off. by a year. Oh, not bad. So you were right there. Not bad. Okay, uh, so Rob Reiner, we talked about him a little bit at the beginning of the show. Yep. He wrote most of this show and directed it, or most of this movie, rather. Mm-hmm. He has a really long career with tons of credits and dozens and dozens of projects. I'm really sure diverse. Uh, awesome, awesome guy. Lots of talent. However, he has only ever been nominated for one Academy Award. Can you name the film that he was nominated for? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, I don't think it was When Harry Met Sally. No, it's got to be Misery. I'll go with Misery. It was actually 1993's A Few Good Men. Oh, he was yes. Director. Right. Yep. Oh, that's a oh, right on. Yeah. Good movie. Okay, Man, so. That's a good movie. I haven't seen that. Surprising. What? No one. You haven't seen that? Oh, my God. Yancey, <laughs> you would love that movie. It is really good. Okay, so in the early drafts and scripts of the film, yep. what was the band's first name going to be? Oh, like this in the original a, script before they yep. actually came out? This is out. a little bit of a trick question, but yes. Um, I don't know. It was Spinal Tap, but it was actually spelled S-P-Y-N-A-L. Oh, very cool. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. I don't know if you can tell this, uh, judging from past episodes, but I spent a lot of time on trivia this week. I'm so glad. I know. That, that's like, good. Yo, you definitely did. And you're, and you're stumping me, too. So that's good. Okay. So you were talking about cameos. I know you know this, but can you name the two actors that played the mimes, Morty and the other one that I don't think they actually remember? Uh, they oh, don't well, mention his well, name. Well, Billy Crystal was Morty, but Dana Carvey was the other one. Okay. So, yeah, you, yeah. you nailed that as well. Yeah. Um, let me see if I have any other ones real quick. Normally, I'm so used, Chris, to whenever we're talking about this you basically just rattle go off through probably yeah yeah um there was some good there, just to go into cameos for a second i mean patrick mcnee was in it he was sir dennis eaton hogg and he mm-hmm. was probably best known for the avengers tv show back in the 60s so you wouldn't know who that is uh also Artie fufkin was paul schaefer which you probably knew um yep. from, from the you know the world's most dangerous band and um paul benedict from the jeffersons and the goodbye girl he was in it i thought he was really really funny and of course fred willard um, and he's done other uh, mockumentaries with Christopher Guest, like Waiting for Guffman, especially Best in Show. Like he was so good at Best in Show, Fred Willard. I was. need to watch that, don't I? Oh I really god, it was it that. was really funny. I I had never seen it, believe it or not, until a couple years ago. I was on a plane somewhere. I was flying them. I think I was going to Vegas for the podcast awards, and I watched it on the plane, and I was like, wow, I can't believe it's taken me this long to watch this movie. It was phenomenal, really, really, really good. But Waiting for Guffman has always been a favorite of mine. It is so funny. Oh, God. It's just just brutal. Again, I think the thing is, like, like Waiting for Guffman is kind of like Spinal Tap in the sense that it kind of plays on the fact of people that are just not quite famous but just wish they were or they had this, like, desire to be famous. And the same thing with Best in Show, I think it plays as well. You know, 
kind of small potatoes being like a, a dog trainer at the Westminster show, but to them, it's kind of That's like a celebrity world. thing. And it's, yeah, yeah, and it's like within that world, they're they're kind of famous, and it's just I don't know. There's just these themes that kind of keep recurring that I just think are very. I don't know. There's just something about them that are kind of very special. And they they kind of cut close to the bone. They're very good. Bruno Kirby was in it as well. He was a limo driver. Remember when he, when he was talking about um, about Sinatra and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff? And and you know, Fran Drescher, as you mentioned, you know, ah man, it was good. Archie Hahn. Most most people don't remember Archie Hahn, but uh, Archie Hahn was a comedy guy from the '70s too. But uh, anything else? Sorry, you had another one. Um, I was going to mention one about the uh, the Bruno Kirby character. He played Tommy Pisquetta, the cab driver. Yes. And it's kind of weird, too. If you look at him in the face, whenever I first saw him, I didn't know where I knew him from. He looks like an older Edward Norton. I don't know if you can yeah, see that. Does. Yeah, I guess, I guess I could see that. You know, he was young when he did this movie, but, you know, obviously best known for, like, city slickers and stuff like that. So, uh, but I don't know, all in all, I mean, like like I say, it's a, it, I guess they're not all, you know, huge hits with you, but I hope you at least enjoyed it. At the very least, Yancey, now you can at least say, and that's really what a lot of this podcast is about that you can kind of go and say I've seen that you know what mm-hmm. I mean? yes I have seen that movie and you know and and, and for, for millennial good on you for doing that so I think that's great so now comes the part of the show where you've got to throw a title at me so what are we going to watch for next week and come back what's the millennial film that we're going to spin this around and do next week so we're going to be watching a film that I took my wife to see a couple of years ago in theaters. Uh, surprising no one, it is a science fiction film, and it's Ex Machina from 2015. Wow. I've never heard of that movie before. <laughs> it is good. I honestly think you're going to like this, Chris. This isn't going to be like Moon or District 9 where you're kind of you know struggling to find out like what it's about. I think you're really, really going to enjoy this film. I, so well, that, that being said, I mean, I really like District 9. I thought it was really good. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, Moon I didn't like. Moon I didn't like at all. If, <laughs> if 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 I never saw that movie again for the rest of my life, I could lead a perfectly wonderful, happy life. But uh, but no, I thought that I thought District Nine was pretty good. So Ex Machina is the one. Ex Machina is, is anyone yes. in it that I've ever heard of? Um, Sam Rockwell. I don't know if you've um, seen him in some other films. He played. Yeah, the crazy you made guy me. You made me watch. You made me watch friggin' Moon with him in it. I mean, just yeah. I'm going back to the well again with this guy. <laughs> oh wait, no, I'm sorry. You're talking about Ex Machina. Yeah, Ex Machina. Um, yeah, uh, Oscar Isaac, you know, the pilot from uh, from uh, from Star Wars, Wars most recent yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. He's in a bunch of films, actually. Yeah. But um, but yeah, he's in it. And then uh, I, I can't remember the character's name, but he is a um, he's like a redheaded English actor. He's he was actually in Star Wars, too. Ironically, um, he's in the film as well. So it's a uh, it was one of those like fly under the radar. It, it wasn't like a huge commercial success, um, but it's on a lot of critics lists. If you look on IMBD and Rotten Tomatoes, it has a near perfect score. It is a really, really interesting so film. Kind of, kind of like this is Spinal Tap. It, it kind of came out to very little fanfare, but it's very, very highly um, touted by the critics and by fans. So. Yep. All right, yep, exactly. we'll do that next week. All right, until then, this is Chris McBride for Yancey Eaton saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 